I would never say I told you so, but I did warn you not to get all excited about those two days of 80 degree weather in April. I mean, it's... Oh, hi. It's Pete Pomisano here on another edition of RLTP's podcast, Off-Road. And yeah, it's been a little dreary lately, and it's a little dark and gray and wet and damp and moist. A lot of people hate that word, moist. I'm not exactly sure why, but it's it's a great word. And it's so appropriate for the last, what, 30 days? Anyway, it's another edition of Off-Road, and this week I've got a great interview with someone behind the scenes that a lot of people don't know much about, but he's one of my favorite people in the Buffalo Theater community. He's a sound designer, he's a musician, he's a composer. And it's hard to explain this, but if you've been to a number of shows at different theaters in Buffalo, you've probably heard his sound design. You you probably didn't even pay any attention because a good sound design just sort of, I think it's just there in the background and it gives some sort of mood to the overall show and it just really enhances the experience for you. And you've probably never even given it much thought, but here's a guy who's giving it a ton of thought. Tom McCarr is here. So before I introduce him, let me tell you a little bit about Tom McCarr. Tom was a rock and roller back in my day. Well, maybe a little bit after my day. I mean, nobody was in my day. But back in, back in the old days, Tom was a rock and roller playing in bands, rock bands, very popular rock bands around Buffalo. And then somehow, as you'll find out, he gets involved in designing sound for theaters designing the sound effects you hear and composing the music you hear. If you've gone to Shakespeare in Delaware Park, you've heard some of his originally composed music. He writes the music, he plays the music, he gets the sound effects. He's a pretty amazing guy. Oh, there it is again, the old ticking clock. And I promise you more information. I'm giving this out in little dribs and drabs, you know, and there will be more information about what this ticking clock means. You can look at it as a ticking clock. You can look at it as a ticking time bomb. But there's going to be an explosion of excitement in June. Or is it July? It's going to be whenever I finish the damn thing. So there's going to be an explosion of excitement. So be ready for that. But first, let's talk to Wild One himself. Mr. Tom McCarr here on RLTP's Off-Road with me, Pete Pomisano. So where were you from originally? Were you from, were you like one of the Cheektowaga group? Yeah, I, we moved to Cheektowaga when I was like three years old. Did you go to Maryville or Cheektowaga High School or? or? No, I went to Our Lady of Christians. Uh-huh. And then went to Calis Anxious. So did you pick up music along the way, or how did that even happen? Or or was that not even a prime interest at the beginning? Oh, no, I was interested in music from the time I was a kid, from yeah. five, six years old. Babysitters, their rock and roll on the, on the radio. Rock and roll and I had the same life. And were you one of these guys, well, like myself, who, you know, the Beatles came out and it was like... Well, hell, anybody can do this now. It was, or did you have did you have formal training as well? I took some music lessons in Chictawaga. They would come to schools back then and give you music aptitude tests, which, of course, then the music school would come around, talk to your parents about how gifted you know they should really take lessons, and and so. But we couldn't afford a piano, and they said you should start on keyboard. Yeah, and of course, 
my parents couldn't afford a piano. Of course. So my brother and I had accordions. Me too. Yeah. We actually were on the radio playing accordion. We were at Klein Hands once playing accordion. No kidding. Who did you take lessons from? Uh, Premier Music on Union. Union yeah. Genesee. Yeah. So you started you started with keyboard stuff. Yeah, but same thing. I mean, I I didn't want that clunky thing. No. Even then, I'm watching Ricky Nelson and all the girls screaming for him. And yes. Elvis. Of course. You know, and it's like, they don't, they don't have accordions. No, you no. Know, it's not so much. It's interesting. It's not so much now. But, you know, that's like the, your parents thing, all that stuff. And it was all about rejecting everything. Yes. So, no, I was begging for a guitar. And I'll practice every day. Or, you know. Yeah. You begged for a guitar. I begged for a guitar after the Beatles came out. Same situation. For me, it was even before the Beatles. It was, I was already... Yeah. Buddy Holly and Eddie Cochran. And so I always thought that those guys had real trained musicians behind them. It was it was when the Beatles came out that I thought, well, hell, you mean anybody can do this? We, you know, and my friends who are, quote, trained musicians all look at me even now going, you don't know anything about music. But but that background in, in accordion, you know, that taught me a lot about music theory, you know, chord structures and you know, I still in my head, I still in my head, Tom, when I think of E, B, and A, I still think of the buttons. There's E and B is above it and A is below it, right? And that's the way I picture it in my head, even though I play guitar now. I, I still picture it that way, the buttons on the left hand of the accordion. So when did you finally get in some band? I got some people together that was actually a band. Mm -hmm. I was like 15. If you want some real, some real anecdotal history here. <laughs> the first time we ever came out on stage, I'm pretty sure we played glad all over because it was only like two chords or something. <laughs> it was four of us. We had turtlenecks, beetle boots, and white tight pants with beetleish haircuts. It was at a CYO variety show. They had all of these other Things. And we, I think we were the last ones, as I recall. Behind curtains, the curtains opened, and all the girls screamed. And then I, I thought, well, there we go. It's all, <laughs> we're, we're set. My first professional gig, which was really just a, a trio thing that some kid, my brother and another kid from school, we opened for Jerry Lee Lewis at the <gasps> Delta. <laughs> now, Jerry Lee Lewis was not, you know, this was the 60s, so he was already, like, just making money. Yeah. He came in. He played our Farfisa. He didn't travel with a band or anything. He played, but we opened for my first professional. So it was like, it's in the stars. I mean, obviously. And then, you know, whatever, 20 years later, when you're the, the usual story, uh, a musician with $5,000 worth of equipment in a $500 car going to a $50 gig. <laughs> Yeah, my father bought a station wagon to cart our first band, the Crestwoods, around to CYOs and teen clubs. There were shitloads of teen, you know, at that time. All the teens. Did you play the Commodore River? Uh, yes, we did play one time. Yeah, I mean, that was the place to play because there'd be a thousand kids there. And wasn't there like a Sky Room or something down on yeah. Niagara Falls Boulevard and... I remember we played with the Tweeds one time, Dave Costantino that went on. They probably blew you away like they blew our band away. Oh, when we oh yeah. I remember sitting in the green room with Dave Costantino, and he was playing just an acoustic guitar, and they were singing, I don't want to spoil the party. And yeah. I don't want to spoil the party. And he's sitting there, and the other guy's harmonizing with him. And I just looked over, and I thought, well, shit, these guys are good. These, 
these guys are good. Yeah. And, and he was a great guitarist. And then there was Glenn Scadden and the Twigs in my neighborhood. Yeah, they were great. Was there anybody else in your band who ever went on to any kind of fame or success? I was the one that kept people in the band even when they wanted to move on, some of them. No, the closest thing to it, oops, this was much later, is when we had a contract with Jerry Myers, who was one of the top independent promoters in the world and David Kahn were managing us. And we had a drummer, Dan Jaras, who is just, just a d delightful, crazy person in the Keith Moon style of drumming. Mm -hmm. They made us, they had a meeting and, and, you know, and like you do and you sell your soul. And they said, you're going to have to get a different drummer. He doesn't, he's not steady enough. He doesn't keep a straight beat. The, the, the tempo changes mm -hmm. throughout the song, et cetera, et cetera. And so he went on, he's played with Phil Collins, back, you know, like backed up and he just on studio sessions. And he's still like a very successful drummer. Howard Wilson, you might know Howard Fleetwood Wilson, uh, mm -mm. Pauline and the Perils at that time, and, and now with the Informers, the, you know, the top cover group. Oh, from, I know Howard. Yes, now I yeah, know. Yeah, he, he wound up taking over. Did your family have any musical background? My parents didn't, but I had a cousin, that's one of the influences too, who played guitar, and he had a like a Fender amp with tremolo and he had like an echoplex on his voice and he would sing. And it was like, Oh my. And, you know, and it was just at home. He was just, you know, warming up for a gig. <laughs> and I, I had an accordion playing cousin too, but, and it was just like, a, like remarkable to me. Yeah. 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 The person in front of you was making this sound in, in his living room. <laughs> That, yeah, I can I can picture all of that because the first time I heard things with an echo wreck or even even a, the vocal master with the with the reverb turned up, you just went, that sounds like a real you know a real gig somewhere. When we had our first gigs, and my brother who passed away, I was the one that at Christmas would ask for like marionettes or things and and painting sets. He would ask for like electronic kits and you know that sort of thing from childhood building crystal radios and when we first gigged and we even did this at the club commodore we had like stereo speakers from olson's and like horns but the horns were like outdoor horns like they'd have at a plaza you know like for a pa system out yeah. out, in, out in the parking lot fiberglass wired up to a Bogan, I think the amps were those mm -hmm. little amps and stuff. And at the club commodore for a thousand kids, which was probably like 150 Watts or something. <laughs> First, you put your mic right into your guitar amp and, you know, say, I mean, who knew? Yeah. Oh, originally. Sure. You originally, we used a microphone from, from a uh, web core tape recorder. Right. <laughs> because it had a quarter inch plug. That'll work. Plug that into, he's got a silver tone app and plug it into there. He's got two inputs. We did. <laughs> Put this one in the other one. And my brother was upset. At that already then was like into like how to get the sound. And when we saw the Beach Boys at the odd with voice of the theaters, Ooh. he just thought that that's the state. And it was the state of the art for, you know, traveling. We wound up carrying those around for years before there were actually roadies. That was fun. Carrying voice of the theaters and Leslie's and Hammond organs and things. Oh. So heavy. Did, now, was your brother the electronics guru in the in the group? Well, here's the thing. He was a drummer, and he mm -hmm. was a drummer in bands. Eventually, we drummers were a dime a dozen. Sound men, people that actually knew what they were doing, 
Right. You know, once it got, this was much later, we begged him, talked him into being a songwriter, which was not, he wanted to be on stage. Um, he did a lot of time on stage with, with us, but then when we were in Cheeks, he was, he was the sound guy, but there was always fighting about the sound besides. <laughs> well, because you, you clearly know, I mean, since you've become a sound designer and we'll, we'll get that down the road, but, but you clearly know a lot about electronics and about, you know, did you get some training in that somewhere or was this on the job? I had no knowledge of electronics or any of that. I was the guy in the band. My brother was the electronics guy. I would stomp on the box and say, Bob, it's not looking. There's nothing coming out. And he would, well, you have to plug it in or what, you know. <laughs> I started in theater. Um, I basically, I mean, in the land of the blind, etc. Yeah. Because people in theater didn't even know how to work their car radios. So I was a genius, but I, I knew what an amp was and a microphone was and what speakers were and even equalizers and that sort of thing. I'd done recording by then, but I, but I really had no expertise. I would call my brother three times a day at work. Bob, I, I didn't. Well, it's an XLR, and do you have XLR? You know. Uh, but what a great resource! I read, and I and it was learning, learning by doing. And I'm not, and I do not have expertise. I do not do. I I find equipment that works. I have no engineering, electronics background. I don't want to. I, I don't know if you know. I mean, I, it took me years and years in theater to realize that people may know how to do these things, but they don't admit it. And I was stupid enough to admit that I guess I can wire up a phone, you know, <laughs> to ring. Oh, so everybody's at the lunch while you're crawling around on the floor. What And things don't always never work the first time. And so many times at the Kavanoke Theater before tech, you know, and I'm crawling around and something, you know, something that's not working, something's not working and troubleshooting and people get pissed and, you know, it's just, whole, that was just horrible. Well, you know, it's funny that you say this because I did sound design for a few people, for Mary Kate and for Jay. And, and there was a point when Mary Kate, I did two shows in a row for her. It was mostly just finding music what she needed and a few sound effects and things like that. But I know exactly what you mean because it was, then she called me for the third show in a row. And I said, Mary Kate, this is not what I want to do. I'm helping you out. Just, you know, I wasn't even charging or anything. I said, I'm just helping you out because you're a friend. I don't, I don't want to do this. I'm sure that she looked for other people who actually knew what they were doing, but I had done it for years in my own RSDP in my own little group because there was nobody else to do it. And yeah. I had that same as you. I had the, I knew where I could find a microphone. I knew how I could record things. I knew how I could. I had to go into a, a mixer, which had to go to an amplifier, which had to go to a speaker. That's it. So what did you do in between? Well, I don't want to get to the theater stuff yet, but what did you do in between there when you were, or have you just gone playing rock and roll in different bands and then solo the whole time and then you got involved in theater things? No, no, no. I was, okay, there was like the first band, the Crestwoods, mm -hmm. even with the name painted on the drum. Why? I don't know. <laughs> At least it wasn't burned, Tom. Ours was burned, not the burned. <laughs> way better, way <laughs> Cooler, but nobody ever got it. You know, like everybody's been burned. You know, like been burned and with both feet. You know, just the, the Buffalo Springfield. Everybody went, so you're the burned? No, no, just burned. Never mind. I've had that every time you don't put a the. They still call <laughs> the wild one. <laughs> so, so the second one where we 
which was a much better name that uh, you know I came up with was the Sunday Morning Wonderland Band. Yes, was, you know they're very. We had Rufus before Shaka Khan, mm-hmm. and then there was Jambo. Did any of those bands? Did you? You must have recorded, right? We did because Jerry Myers, uh, uh, Jerry. Yeah, not, I mean, not till Jambo did we start. My brother would do the recording. My father, who was crazy about my brother because he knew so much about electronics and thought thought he was some kind of genius. Because mm-hmm. uh, my father actually had to get a GED in his 50s oh. when when his job, you know, the jobs left Buffalo sure. to just get an electrician's job. Anyway, no, uh, we didn't hook up with Jerry Mike. So then there was Jamble, which was a cover band, which worked constantly, which yeah. that's when that was that era when you know the Talus and the Cock Robins and and you had roadies and a big truck and you brought all this freaking equipment. They'd come in four hours early to set up for a, a one night. We all had one night right. gigs besides it was like you had Tuesday night at this bar and you know Sunday at this bar and Monday at this bar and Tuesday at this bar, you know. Because Jerry Myers eventually had Act One Studios in Buffalo. We we recorded with him in Cleveland, but but that was before he built his studio. Did he did you ever record with him? Oh um, this is what happened. So then broke up, I, I broke up Jambo because it was going nowhere. Mm. And so it was Cheeks that started doing this British invasion stuff. And then Jerry Myers and David Kahn were looking for a group to manage. Oh. You know, we're tired of going in and pushing other people. So you want one of ours. But it was very casual, especially like Jerry Myers. And, you know, it was a huge deal back then, he was like world renowned. But he wouldn't push our music. And then we just got a break with this movie thing, this movie up the Academy. It was it was a sort of a ripoff of John Belushi. Uh, Animal House. Animal House. It was they had a few movies of that genre and they called him and said, you know, that group you have, the group that was originally that they didn't they didn't want to release it as a single. They had, the rest of it was was like Blondie and Ian Hunter and and you know, the kinks in the soundtrack album, but the single, the original music, they didn't like the group. What about that group you have? Do they have anything we could use? He said, oh, sure. We had nothing recorded. You know, we had demos, but we had nothing, mm-hmm. no final tracks recorded. He said, oh yeah, well, we'll send it to you next week. We went into Mark Custom in Clarence. They kicked everybody out. We had the studio reserved for whatever, four days, 24 hours. And we went in there and, and recorded like, I think five songs or something. Two of them they used in the soundtrack, and then two they used one from the soundtrack and another one for the B side, which they wanted to be the A side, which would have made my career. Except freaking Joan Jett actually had a song called "Bad Reputation" in the the album in the soundtrack, and I written a song called "They Wanted to Use the Song Bad Reputation." Oh, so it was the B side of the single, which was "Boney Maroney," which was a Larry Williams unsung hero of rock and roll, as the single from the album mm-hmm. so we had a single on capitol records oh, wow which meant not a lot it made it like local seven in the charts in buffalo or something like that eventually it got to the point where it's not happening no one's had this many chance we had every opportunity did you start playing solo out in uh, solo gigs first and then somehow you got involved in theater we'll get around to that no i was still this was in the artificial flavor Years, yes. Yeah. Paula was choreographing, and she called me on a Sunday and said the keyboard player, who shall remain unnamed, okay. was not up for rehearsals. And can you help us out for Rocky Horror for Toy? Mm-hmm. 
I was not a keyboard player. I did like a set of bang, bang, bang. I could work out a song and that's all I could play. I couldn't just sit down at a dinner party and sure. just, I wasn't really that interested in keyboard. I only used it, even when I recorded stuff, I'd play the bass line, you know, with the way this works, you play the bass line and you can only, you can play two measures or even like one measure, mm-hmm. you know, and fix it and move on. But I would play some keyboards when we played out, even in like the other bands, I would, I had wordless or piano that I played with Jeeps and stuff like that mm-hmm. and with Jambo. But I said, there's got to be somebody that's a real keyboard player. You call around. If not, of course, I'll help you out. So that was Toy. That was Meg Pantera. That was Rocky Horror. That was the beginning of my theater. I mean, I took theater classes, but I wasn't a theater major in college. Mm-hmm. I was in plays in high school, but and I went to plays in college, but I was not in the theater department at all. I wasn't. What was your major? It was English. I actually wanted, had considered in high school at Calus Anxious being a history major and possibly going into pre-law mm. or government. But at Calus Anxious, if you didn't get an 800 on your college boards and, and sevens on your advanced placement, it was, a, you know, you're not smart enough to do that. And I actually, no, I started as an art major. I, I wound up being, an, I mean, as an English major, I, I wound up being an art major at, at Buff State, which is what they told me to do at Calus Anxious because I could draw better. But it was I was not an artist mm-hmm. as far as visual art. But once again, in the, you know, to them, it was like, well, you're good at this. Yeah. So we were at um, Rocky Horror. So in one week, and like I said, I'm not a keyboard player. I'm not even electronics. So I had what, uh, what was it called? Uh, something Moog. One of the Moogs that was out, Memory Moog. Now, there was no sheet music for the keyboard part. Which wouldn't help me anyway, because you know when rock, you don't look at when you start doing rock and roll, you just listen to the record and yeah, okay. you figure it out in your head. Yeah, my sight reading was terrible, so I would sit at the memory moog till like four in the morning with headphones on, figuring out the songs. But also back then, a, a synthesizer, you made the sound from scratch. You made it from waves. There was no sample of the piano. You made the sound of piano. You made the sound of strings. You made the sound of horns by manipulating dials and things. Tweaking. And it's all tweaking because there's no formula. You just fiddle until it works. Mm -hmm. So it was Rocky Horror. So I also did all the sound effects like, you know, freeze guns and all the stuff from the lab sounds and stuff, <laughs> all, you know, all those kinds of things. So I had a week to dress rehearsal. That's what I'm saying. So 16 songs, all the sound effects oh. from the show. And this is how theater went from, I mean, I should have known that was the precursor. And it was a fantastic show. I mean, it was amazing. The perfect cast. It was so sexy. And, and you were the only one playing music? No, no, no. There was a band. There was a musical director. Oh, okay. No, it was a full band. Oh. But I was playing keyboard parts. Wow. And the sound effects. Yes. But it was a fun band, and it was a great cast. And great. It was like Bill Gonta. It was, you know, sure. it was like Richard Hummert, and it was David Oliver, and, you know, all those old school, and Meg Pantera directing. Besides that, I hadn't done any technical you're talking about the behind the scenes stuff i hadn't done any behind the scenes stuff so i just memorized i had cheat i had little cards but my cue for when i should play a sound effect or or whatever i i memorized now the musical director thought she was going to tell me go but it started right then but i already had it all memorized Mm -hmm. right down to the moment so 
Meg found out that I also write music. She hired me to do the music for Henry Ford at Shakespeare in the Park. Oh. And I took it very, very seriously. I thought it was like a movie soundtrack or something. I did this score. Wow. I still say, you see the, you watch a movie and you see the credits for like sound, you know, the sound mixers and orchestra and composers and, and it keeps going and going. That would be all me. Yes. <laughs> But I did, and I recorded it all and and set it up on uh, DAT recording back then, digital oh. tape recording for queuing. And it, I remember when we were teching, you know, the Saturday morning at the park, um, getting ready for, for tech and played the, my, the opening theme at the park, you always need something. Sure. A minute and a half so people kind of get their their wine and cheese and get back to their blanket and everything that the show is starting and so i played my big orchestral piece that such as i could do and the whole cast just burst into applause wow. so that was once again so that was how theater started and then meg hired me for toy you write your, you know, you write this music and, and they hired me for toy and i had a full-time job at toy so that's where the theater thing started was it was your full-time job as composer yeah and i wrote ever for a while in theater i wrote everything even when i started working at the cab mm -hmm. you did that i it was making me crazy i never slept and and the equipment back then that i had and what was available and there was no internet to get sound you'd go to the if you needed sound effects you'd go to you know record theater and get a cd yes um or the downtown you know, library and get these old lps Oh, yeah. And, well, they did have the whole BBC. I found out eventually they had the whole BBC collection and all that, which was extremely helpful. And now it's all available. But, BBC just released it. It's all available online for free. It's, it's amazing. I can easily spend $200 on sound effects for a play when I do sound design now. Mm -hmm. After your toy thing, obviously people <laughs> learned about you. You know, and your sound designs. I remember the first time you did a sound design that I really that really amazed me was when we did uh, The Chosen for JRT. Oh, yeah. And you found the original Edward R. Murrow walking through the concentration camp, and it just it took your breath away. And I said, what, this guy's... <laughs> and, and that was before, really, you were able to find things on the Internet just by Googling them. It was... It had an effect on my health. I, ne I never got enough sleep, the stress with deadlines... And you were doing like three or four theaters, Tom, right? Yeah. There was a time when I was doing uh, like 20 shows, 20, more than 20 shows a season. And you still didn't make a living. No, no. And there was a time when I was doing that and working one and even two other jobs. Yes, yes. Just to get by. I, it was just crazy. And it was just like a blur. It's just a crazy. I don't know how we, how we lived through it. Because Nietzsche was in my head with one of the jobs. What doesn't kill you makes you stronger. Mm -hmm. It was always in my head. <laughs> I get, I still get, you know, it's much better now, but I still get stressed. I still get like when there's a deadline, all of a sudden my neck tightens up. Mm -hmm. Just a read, you know, when I say yes, or it's a read through or some, you know, whatever, when there's a deadline, it's still whatever, you know, I physically have physical symptoms, <laughs> even though I'm much better at this. And I, I have to say COVID with no deadlines for a while, it was terrible on one hand. But it was like a whole new world for me. You could suddenly take a breath and relax a little. And, and you know, you might think you'd feel like, oh, I got nothing to do. I don't know what to do. It didn't hit me that way. 
Now, I was also somewhat disabled for a while with my freaking knee. But, mm-hmm. um, so let me ask you, when you when you accept a, a gig to do a, a show, is it always first in your mind or are you asked by the director that we want you to compose an original piece of music? No, it was very stressful, especially Shakespeare, because it's the, the, just the nature of the plays. There's so many scene changes mm-hmm. and, and things like that. And, and for the park, extra things help bring it to life, you know, for because there's no theater, you know, there's more underscoring, there's more stuff. So there's a lot of work and there's so many people that are counting on you. But it was Nan Doherty who said for one show, and I, you don't have to write for just fine. <laughs> and I have to say that she's the one that gave me my first role, by the way. Nan? Um, Nan Doherty? Yeah, doing the porter for the Scottish play. Okay. And I had not the right experience. I just, and I didn't have a resume. I just wrote this letter and I know she felt sorry for me because of, I said, I've been so I've lived on stage all my life and I can't be in this sound in this dark booth and I'm in the studio and I don't see other people, you know, and I don't, I, you know, that's how, that's how my job works. So she told you to find, just find some things instead of composing. Yeah, actually there was a particular show where she, she specifically only wanted found things. And from that point on, it's been, if I pay for something and they pay their ASCAP and BMI, if it's what I'm looking for and, and I can't achieve because I haven't spent tens of thousand dollars on new stuff and, you know, I just haven't had it. And if they've achieved what I'm trying to achieve, I'm going to use theirs. Mm-hmm. If I'm looking for a certain feel, a certain texture, and I can find it after looking and looking and looking, then I compose something. There's also other shows where they've asked for compositions. Well, did Saul ask you to score an entire one-act play? I remember that for uh, yeah. for JRT because I was directing yeah. the other the other one-act play, and and so he asked you to score the. He wanted music throughout the entire forty minutes or something. Yeah, and yeah, I've done a lot of composing. And I've mixed them. Um, like I said, if, if somebody's doing it better than I can do it, and as long as I paid for it, mm-hmm. a lot of what I do now is Frankensteining. You know, first of all, for one show, I could listen to 80 pieces of music for one show to find like a 30-second little part of one piece. I don't have all these things in my head. I, I reinvent the wheel for every show. And luckily, I so there's this uh, documentary from HBO called Score, which is freaking great and it's like all the great composers Mm -hmm. for film and talk about the same thing that you get the job and you tell them oh yeah i'll take care of that oh i can do that and then you walk out and you're in a panic (laughs) am i just going to dry up am i never going to you know is it just going to you know yeah and you start from scratch that's a little less now because i have such a collection Mm. of sound but I use little pieces of things. I'll put them together. I'll change them. I, you know, I'll use just a texture and mix it with something else. And I love, that's kind of what I like to do now is rather than a melody. Do you have a home studio that is a dedicated yeah. space that we have to, yeah, not just the equipment, but you just need, you need the place. You need the, the... well, it's the basement and, sure. and you actually, you actually need it's like a labyrinth to get through there's so much stuff down there now <laughs> but i don't have a studio that's a sound studio a proper sound studio mm-hmm. so as far as recording a whole recording live things uh, i'm okay to record one thing at a time and if a car goes by i'll do it again mm-hmm. you know <laughs> but uh but i don't have a, a 
And I, I, you know, I've recorded a demo of my music, like the rock music. For those who don't understand how your gig works, when you get when you get a gig, like you yeah. sit down at the Irish Classical with the script, and you, uh, you speak to the director ahead of time. Do you just get a flavor of what the director wants, and then you read the script and you get some sense of what tonal quality you want to you know the music or the sound the sound bed the soundtrack whatever it's it's sort of a give and take between you and the director or do you walk out of there with you know an idea in your own head all of the above none of the above okay so nothing's hard and fast everything's different it's completely different with every director mm -hmm. for years and years now when i worked for a few theaters at the same time like i was their basically their resident sound designer sure I learned to get the scripts the summer before and I would read the season because you're going to wind up, you know, because it's happened where if you read the script, you know, four weeks before when it's time for the read through, that's what we do things now, four weeks. That's all you get to put a whole show together. Right. And then it says you need this obscure recording from 1911, you know, <laughs> that if you find it, it's they're going to ship it from England. You know, it's not going to be here on time. Right. You know, <laughs> so I've learned to read, look for those surprise things in advance. Um, one of the norms to, for me to read a script and just depending on the director, I guess, knowing who's going to direct, because there are certain directors who want more than others. I'll hear a sense of where there would, could be things that in from my reading without hearing me, you know, without hearing it. It's very complicated because I, I, I've been in shows that you've designed for, and I remember moments when you go, oh, that I didn't even know that sound was there. And then you hear either a sound effect or a little, a little piece of music that just adds to the overall effect of the scene. And that is not always written in the script. It doesn't say put in some tinkling bells here or something. That comes out yeah. of your head. Yeah, I read... No, but I'm saying when I read the script, mm -hmm. if they if the director is going to want me to do something more than just in and out, yes. I hear things. Yeah. It's interesting because it sort of goes back to when I was working for Toy. This is only somewhat related. We were doing the Billy the Kid. It was a great show. Was it Lee Blessing? Yeah, Lee Blessing, right. And I had written a whole score on acoustic guitar with that feel of you know, mm -hmm. the West. Yes, yes. And we started teching and Meg directing said, uh, it's just not, I know it's, you know, the period and all that. It's just doesn't have the right tension. Mm. You know, the acoustic guitar and, and I was paying more attention to the period. Yes. Although trying to score things properly. And I thought I came up with really cool stuff. She said... I need, it has to be different. So they kept rehearsing. In three days, I slept probably six hours and did a whole score on keyboard for the show. Completely different feel. Just, I don't know how much writing you've done, but actual real writing, and I've heard this from the composers, so I'm not, I don't care if I'm wrong, if they don't feel the same way, but if, it's more of a sense that it's already there. I'm not an artist. But it's like, you know, Michelangelo said he just, he released an angel from a piece of granite. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? It was there all along. And he just, the same thing with the music. It's just found. It's not 
you're not writing it, you're finding it. So for, I was basically in a, you know, this, this semi-conscious state composing for this show and they loved it and it was, it worked out perfectly. And I had like five themes that we used wow. and it, it worked out great. But from that point, and that's the sense I say when I read a script, it feels like it's already there and you gotta pick it out of the ethos or something. And yeah, but Tom, those... but Tom, let, let's be fair. That 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 is an art. It's it, it's it's hard. <laughs> of course, yes, it is hard. So, and there's art to it. I mean, you, because not everybody can reach up into the ether and pull down the right piece or pull down the right tone. It's not always right. I've made plenty of wrongs. Well, maybe earlier on, and I'm sure you still. If you're like me, which I suspect you are, there are still plenty of times where you go, "Boy, that wasn't right. I I should have, I could have, I could have done that differently." But it's still, you know, pretty darn good that you. What, well, we just did C marks that I, you know, luckily I've had a little bit of work. Although, luckily, I've been getting unemployment by a miracle of. Yes, I need it. Of course, but uh, we did the C marks. We were already into you know the final production and i redid the whole show oh in a few days all composed your own i think i composed a little bit but i redid the whole show you know no i couldn't possibly compose now the last one you're of magical thinking you're of magical thinking it's composed in the sense that i had a, a palette of textures that i'd gotten from other mostly from other people but I mean, I'm just talking about like this sound, whether they're sound effects or whether it's just a, a note, one sustaining note or something and composing with that. And the sense of that play changed. It's somewhat a living thing. And what, what I expected and what even what Kyle had started thinking where it would go is not where it went. Mm. Not exactly. And it's the way it should be. So I had to read that one in days. I had to kind of redo my whole thinking when they, they did the final, you know, the cut that I was in. I had all this palette laid out and the, the ideas, but I took, you know, days. It's not as bad as it used to be. It used to be 18 hour days in tech quite during the tech week would not be any way unusual. But I mean, at Cav. Oh, yeah. Brian and I would often be at the theater, at, often at four o'clock in the morning, you know, yeah. back and stuff like that. Just both working there. Okay, the lights are going out. Is that okay? <laughs> oh, I know. I would. We would be leaving at 11 o'clock after rehearsal. Coming in. Brian, you and Brian would be coming in. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, but you get paid so well. I know. It's amazing. My wife, you know, Julie's a mental health professional. Professional. And which is not a... Not raking you know, well, she's you know very well established and respected, and and so mm -hmm. she's kind of at her you know at a decent level. But it's not yes a lot. But if it wasn't for that, I'd be on the street. This is why I like talking to guys like you and Brian. Brian was my first interview, and it's because people don't have any idea. Well, well, like everything else, nobody really knows what goes into it, and nobody really knows. That, I mean, they see the actors, you know, they see the lights, but if they're if the lights are good, they don't really even notice the lights. Yeah. Same thing with the sound. If the sound design is good, it just there's something about it that just affects you physically and emotionally and even mentally. But you don't really say. Most people don't. I do because I'm right. I'm one of these guys. I'm one of these guys who spends the whole time in a play doing this. 
Oh, that was a cool effect. How did they do that? <laughs> oh, oh, where did he find that sound? You know, things like that. Those things fascinate me. But other people, this is why I like talking to guys like you, because I want people to know what's going on behind the scenes. And you clearly, are you getting more satisfaction out of it now? I mean, it's it's not the same as your your gigs. I mean, I've seen you at gigs and you're, you know, you're having a lot of fun, but you must be getting some more satisfaction out of it. You're, and you're one of the few, I shouldn't even say this because I'm not sure it's true, but there are other sound designers in, time, in town. I don't know who else composes as much as you do, well, uh, at least not to my um, mind. First of all, what you were saying before, it would drive Julie crazy that you don't, if you don't get, if it's not a review or whatever, you didn't come to the wedding and, you know, you didn't sleep. And, and they... I've been saying to you for years, every time I went to the Artie Awards, I said, why isn't there a sound design award? Probably because at the time you were the only guy designing and they just give it to Tom every year. First of all, my answer to that was always, as soon as they do it, some kid that's using $2 million worth of equipment at UB <laughs> that had half a year to do something is going to get it. You know, <laughs> but what you said, you have to accept it as a compliment if the audience feels like, well, it must have come with the script because it's it's obviously what the music should be or the sound should be. They must have right. come. You know, that's obviously what should be there. Oh, it's all part of the package. Yeah. And I only know one show where that's ever happened in Death of a Salesman. You can get an album, an LP yeah. vinyl of the original sound yeah. from the original production. Other than that, I've never also, seen that happen. You can, our town, you can. Our town does yeah. it too? I just want people to know that what else is going on. If it could be more satisfying, maybe because there's less, but. What happened through the years, and COVID stopped it, is there's something you can't even think about what you did, and you're not sure if you did what you know. It's more often that you're not sure what you did, if it, but you just kept doing it, and you did, you know, you think it's right, but you're not even sure. And you, it happened for years and years and years. I wouldn't go to openings and stuff because I, I was working on another show. And of course, <laughs> no time. I did, you know, and it's, it's also. And you can't get away from, you know, when you work from home, you never leave work. When there's a, a show, it can be a good thing and a bad thing. It's kind of always there. Like, I'm always seeing something in a movie or something and kind of making a note, like, or mm -hmm. mental note at least. And sometimes it's like when I have a show coming up and it's like, that's where, you know. So I appreciate, I, I do appreciate sound design, sure. theater, and music. And I don't think there's much, even my sound design, I think it could be tweaked. Well, it's remark, you know, like excellent sound design is excellent sound design it is something even in movie, you know, even in a movie or something. There's, you know, some is better than others. Um, there are Katie Mankey composes sound all, music all the time. By the way, you're saying I don't know if other sound. Oh, oh yeah, Katie's great. Uh, worked with her several times. Lovely girl, very clever, very creative. She composes stuff all the time. And there are people that write music that also do say, well, I can do the sound design also. But mm -hmm. I put too much into it. It's just the only, the, when you say satisfaction, this the only satisfaction, especially during the analog days and, and mixers that you had to worry about the buzzes and, and the, you know, all this kind of stuff was all part of the equation. Reel-to-reel -reel tapes, and especially through that, mm -hmm. and cassettes and things for sound cues. Sure. But there's no money. And there's no recognition, but I'm the one I want to please. 
I'm the one that needs to, well, not please, but needs to be satisfied. I, I'm the one that needs the, the, the level that needs to be achieved is something that I'm saying. Well, and you're a creative guy. You need a creative outlet. And yes, you've written your own rock music too. You have CDs out, you, all of those things. But there is a level of creativity and problem solving. Yeah. I know exactly, especially back, like you said, back in the analog days, when you had to figure out how to go from a reel to reel and how to edit without clipping the tape and taping it together and all, all those sorts of things that, you know, in, in a different era you had to rely on. And there's a certain satisfaction to the light bulb going on. And I know how I can do that and coming up with a solution. Your creativity needs an outlet and, and you've got one. So you're still doing Irish classical. Do you still do toy or no? Oh, no, I haven't done toy. That was your entry drug, entryway drug. Here's the thing with, with the difference with toy. You write some music, they just hand you a check, which in, in a band, it's like, you, you know, you just put money in. Mm -hmm. And then it got the pay-to-play kind of thing started coming. We had to pay the club to let you play there to promote yourself. This nonsense. Yeah. So it was like toy, even though it wasn't much money. There were two things that, that attracted me to theater. And one was that. You write something, they just give you money. And, you know, you don't have to go suck up to people. Or right. The other thing was, interestingly, getting into theater then, the dedication of people in theater just far and away beyond the people in bands. The work they were willing to put in and, and the way they cared about excellence. The reason I say to the cab was not David Lamb and I. His commitment to excellence because we politically or whatever, or just the, what theater is, mm -hmm. we have existential differences. But his commitment to excellence was what kept me there. And that's partly why Holly got away from music. Because um, you've been in bands. Like I said, people, oh, people are stupid. We're great. And, you know, they're just, it's just because they're stupid, you know. <laughs> and no, I don't have to practice. I don't have to, <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm great. And there's a lot of that. And, and, and I see now, Yeah, I was, I was just naive back then because I was a workaholic and I was a pain in the ass too. It's a defense mechanism. You're making excuses for why why it's not going anywhere and right. it's, it's, it's somebody I mean, else's it's fault. It's a defense mechanism because you need a lot of ego to get up there and lay it out. Anyway, so, that, so at Toy, I had a full-time job and I was making what would be a real living because I had grant money. Back then there was grant money and it was a toy theater of youth, so they'd like tap into educational money, even though they were doing Toy After Dark was the main focus, you know, the adult plays. And we recorded several radio dramas because Tom Martin and Meg had studied radio drama in England. So we, from scratch, with my brother in his studio, which led me to get a grant to get my... I taught a class at Performing Arts and at Gateway, which are court-ordered kids, in quote radio drama, which we didn't do any radio drama because they had no interest, but they had a grant. To, so I taught them about recording microphones and mixers and recording and sound effects and things like that. But mostly we put together hip hop songs and stuff like that back then. <laughs> um, well, I mean, it, you know, I mean. That's where their interest lies. Right, and, and they were learning. So, but then that all, the grants all fall apart. And they, I got, it was like one day I was making a living as like, and I really got pissed because they fired, yeah, They said, I'm sorry, we don't, you know, Megan and Colleen in the office. Colleen was crying when I left. <laughs> it was oh, terrible. Man. And then I was working all these side jobs. And yeah. You just take the first job, delivery jobs. 
Irish is doing planning a few shows next year. Yeah. So I'll be involved there. And, and, you know, with Kate, she seems to think I still have something to offer them. And, uh, but yeah, it's dwindling because Jewish, I think they're just going to go with cheap $300 sound design from now on. Um, I'm, that's not me. And I, I think that's fine. This whole thing about, you know, oh, gee, let's put on a show. Who can let, who can we borrow this from and who will give us this and they'll do us a favor. And, you know, oh, they know, wait a minute, we already got six favors from them. So we'll just <laughs> get a free favor from somebody else. To me, it's like you're a producer, produce. Come up with the money for a professional. The theaters got to a point where it's it's not very much, but at least I, I can see it's all they have. That sure. you know, I mean, sure. that's all they can put in the budget. Yeah. I just work. I just put too often. Put more in. You do seasons for a theater, with an understanding that when you're the resident sound designer. This won't be much work, but this, you know, you're not going to sleep. Right, right. And and you don't want, the last thing you want to do is sit down and figure out your per hour rate. And I still love theater. I just, theater is very important to me. But what happened in Buffalo Theater, which probably happens everywhere, it did get kind of mercenary. It got commercial because there are so many theaters. And it really started to get about, okay, we're going to, because when I started with Toy, you would have a concept six months earlier, you'd talk to, Meg would be talking to you about what they're going to do maybe mm -hmm. next year and what the concept that you have a year to, you know, let it percolate and mm -hmm. find things. Now it's like, on one hand, it's very flattering. Directors very rarely contact me in advance, like they do the, the costume designer, the set designer. Which is flattering in the sense that they, okay, Tom will know what to do. Yeah. You know, they expect I'll know what to do. But yeah, it's it's like sometimes I have to contact them. What do you want for that? <laughs> what do you, I know what I hear. What do yeah. you hear? Yeah, what, what's your concept of this thing? Cause... So like we were talking about before, sometimes directors will come say, no, you know, I know exactly what I micro, some, some micromanage. Interestingly, interestingly Brian is a, was kind of a micromanager until the last show he did, mm. which is fine. But he would give me a list of, he would give me a CD of music he wants to use okay. for the show. <laughs> and unless it was something, it, when directors do that, if it's something that it's just like, I would never do that. So it's fine, I'll do it, but don't put my name in the program. Mm. I actually did it with Brian once, which was fine. It was like, assistant or something like that, just because that's what I did. I mean, he gave me everything, you know, except for, you know, some sound effects, <laughs> this music and this here and that here, and this is here. And we're going to, we're going to do a, you know, Corey and that, no, see, I have no problem with that. Directors think it's insulting. It's like, you know, exactly what you want. Sure. <laughs> yeah. 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 And I like to see the input, you know, from other, when I, the few times that I've directed, I like to, hear the collaboration. Oh, I never thought of that. I remember, I remember you did some music for something at the Cavanoke. It wasn't something I directed, but I, it was just like some, there was some piano in there. And I thought, this doesn't make any sense to me, but it sounds so perfect now. I don't remember what it was. I remember, yeah. just remember being backstage. And like you said, it's tech day. You're hearing the music for the first time. And all of a sudden this tinkling piano comes in and you go, Wow. That that's great. Two last questions. Number one, what would you be doing, not playing rock and roll, if you weren't sound designing, if you had your druthers and you had taken a different road? What other interests might you? What do you say to yourself, man? I sometimes I wish I had gone into 
the other road I would have taken is what I was talking about before. I would have started by studying history and gone into law and possibly politics. Wow. Not necessarily being an elected official, but in, in politics um, oh. and, or, or law. And the last question, what's, uh, what's Wild One up to? Not much. You, you were the only gig. I was waiting until I was vaxxed. I was, you know, waiting until, you know, to some extent. But it's, it's a little weird. I think I'm pretty good. Yeah. <laughs> Very entertaining. Love it. But I don't have management. I just don't bother to get a website and all the, you know, like, Zach, you know, Zach Ward. I mean, how yeah. the hustling. Well, that's a young man's game, that, all that well, hustling. I mean, and as far as the rock and roll end of it, who knows where that's going? I, you know, I did the, the good bar thing. It was every Wednesday, and then it was once a month on Wednesday, and that's how people knew me. And then I, you know, I had obviously other gigs, but but that's that allowed me to develop that. I've played this tailgate party every year for one of the Bills games, and it winds up being a, a big deal. Mm -hmm. And I do a lot of those private party kind of gigs because yes. they're ridiculously lucrative. Oh, really? Oh, yeah. You know, I record the tracks myself, the bass and the drums. Sure, and sure, sure. Vocals. And so, except for the incredible work that comes into, because I don't have roadies or anything, setting for this tailgate thing, I set up a stage besides the PA system and bring in the equipment and stuff like that. And then, you know, depending on the weather, you know, everybody's gone and I'm dragging, so my back is killing me, packing all this stuff up into the van. <laughs> um, but it's very lucrative. Yeah, yeah. So anyway, I don't know where that's going. I uh, I, I was hoping that you'd you'd say, uh, yeah, well, we're going to open up again uh, July first, and uh, we're going to be gig. It's not, not. It's not. You know, it's a little tricky, and people are wary of the one man band thing. And and surprisingly, this acoustic thing, I never had any interest in playing acoustic music before. Now it, I'm obsessed. I just couldn't. You know, it was rock and roll. I just couldn't picture myself. I certainly don't sit and play it, you know, cash kind of. No, no. It, when I came, I wasn't, and it was called acoustic. And I thought, well, the hell, this isn't acoustic. This is rock and roll, but it's acoustic. You're playing on an acoustic guitar, rock and it's, it's electrified. It's amplified, obviously, but, uh, oh yeah. Well, listen, Tom, thanks so much uh, sure. for talking to me. This is, I hope to see you again soon, my friend. Yeah, I uh, will. Take care of yourself. My best to Julie. Okay. Take care. Bye-bye. Well, is it July yet? Is it July? No, it's not July. So stop complaining about the wet. Oh, never mind. So that's Tom McCarr. And if you ever get a chance to see him live, he's like a one-man band. He records the drums and the bass. And, or, if he, or he just plays acoustically, which is really amplified. But it's just one guitar and him singing his heart out. Great show. A lot of fun. And live music is coming back, too. So look for Tom McCarr or Wild One anywhere you can uh, see live music. And speaking of live music, here's some recorded music. Yes, this is some new theme music I've recorded just for you. And it's just for the new podcast series that's coming up this summer, right here on Off-Road. I've told you a little bit about it. I, I can only tell you this much more at this point. I have compiled about 190 audio clips from people that I've interviewed over the past 
three or four months. People who have a real strong connection to Buffalo's theater. And I know I'm being a tremendous tease about all this, but I want it to be a surprise. And when this series starts, you're going to hear from every one of them. And they're going to tell you in their own words about their connection to Buffalo Theater. Anyway, that's all I have time for today. We'll be back in a couple of weeks with another great interview. This time with another famous person. Someone that everybody knows, I'm pretty sure. Not at all connected to the Buffalo Theater scene, but in a way, he's part of theater of the mind. He speaks, and we see it in our mind's eye. Ah, this is our LTP's Off-Road with me, Pete Pomisano. Pomisano.